Hello guys and welcome back to another episode of The History Sisters. This is a podcast where we take a look at well-known yet unknown speeches, their historical context and their presenters. My name's Sophie. I'm Katie. And we are Sister Du from Germany. And today I'm really excited. We're gonna... I mean, you already have seen it in the title, but I'm really excited because we're going to talk about a speech that is probably one of the most famous speeches ever. Exactly, I'm going to talk about I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King Jr. I hope you guys enjoy this as much as we do. I'm very excited to get started, so let's get started. Fumbling up the words the whole time, I did not have enough historical context Hello everybody, it's Katie here for your weekly disclaimer. Okay, so in this episode we obviously touch a speech and a topic that is a very sensitive and personal one and a very wide discussed one. Um, I just want to quickly remind you that please remember in this episode everything we say is our opinion. We don't mean to offend anyone. If we did, somehow. Please, please contact us via our Instagram, which is at History Sisters Pod, or our mail, which is the History Sisters Pod at gmail.com. In this um, discussion phase, we talked a little bit about our experiences with kind of discrimination, also racism, even though we did not experience it ourselves, but situation in which we witnessed racism please note that whatever we say in the discussion we don't mean that we have it harder than the people who experience racism we would never ever say anything like that uh also i was in charge of the historical context in this episode and i must say now editing it i didn't really do a very good job seemed to have a bad day i was just excused this and I know that there are a lot of great books, videos, documentaries, and movies out there to educate yourself on Martin Luther King and the speech I Have a Dream, and racism in general. I know we say this in every end of the episode, but please educate yourself on this topic. It's an urgent one that is very present in um, our society right now, and it needs to be heard. So without further ado... uh. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Okay, guys. So I guess, uh, or I think that uh, you might know a lot of, or not a lot, but you might know some historical context from this one since it is so famous. But you might not, because it is so famous, you might only hear these words, I have a dream, or only have that in your mind, which is fine. I didn't know most of this either. So I think that I don't really have as detailed or a surprising fact, but I thought that this is such an important speech that I don't want to have like too much of a detailed historical context, but rather have a long discussion about it and a long like what can it tell us. And I also wanted to give the facts and the real like accurate historical context and not some fun facts around it because I think that wouldn't do the importance of this speech justice so i hope you guys still enjoy it uh yeah i'm gonna start so um this uh, speech is held by martin luther king jr martin luther king jr was a young baptist minister 
who rose to prominence in the 1950s as a spiritual leader of the civil rights movement and as the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, also known as LS, no, SLCC. King held more speeches, obviously, than the I Have a Dream speech. He held speeches all over the country during his life, um, his last one being in Memphis, Tennessee, called I've Been to the Mountaintop, which is probably his second most famous speech, and also one that is very, very beautiful and very well said. Um, maybe we'll talk about that in some future episodes, who knows. Um, and shortly after the speech, only a couple hours after that, he was assassinated on his hotel balcony. It was April 4th, 1968. So King was probably the most influential, or not influential, but the most prominent person from the civil rights movement, and movement at that time. So it took the whole world by shock when he was assassinated. And people all over the world still know his name, and I think it's very important that we continue to say his name. In the early 1960s, the African Americans um, saw various campaigns that managed to change actually, to actually change things. Sometimes it were only little things, sometimes it were, were some bigger things. Um, regarding segregation, such as the Freedom Rides in 1961, which resulted in the end of segregation on buses and in stations, um, but that only through violence. So that was kind of a little bit of motivation to go through and to push through, even like obviously they had a bunch of motivation because it, it like that their, their lives depended on it. But to, that gave them like the last bit of motivation to kick through every time because they had this example that it can actually work, that things can be changed. And thus, the freedom rights weren't the only thing that changed. Um, in the following years, after the March on Washington, which I'll come to in a second, um, some huge milestones um, were made. For example, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended the segregation in all public places and banned employment discrimination or the Voting Rights Act of 1965, so only a year later. It was aimed to overcome legal barriers at the state and local levels that prevented African Americans from exercising their right to vote. So these two were probably the most important rights acts that were um, passed for black history. Now, I've already mentioned March on Washington. March on Washington um, was organized by veteran organizer Bayard Rustin, and helped to, uh, who helped to bring the logistics together to start it in summer 1963, so one year before the Civil Rights Act. King and another very uh, important leader, not leader, but a very important figure in the civil rights movement, Randolph, were joined by the heads of the big six civil rights organizations and other influential leaders came aboard as well. The March on Washington was scheduled for August 28th. Okay, perfect, but what is now the War on Washington. The March on Washington was an event that was to consist of a mile-long march from the Washington Monumentum to the Lincoln Memori Memorial to honor the president who signed the Emancipation Proclamation a century earlier, so in uh, 70, no, in 1863. 
So we're in Washington DC and we're honoring Abe Lincoln. The march featured a series of prominent speakers as well as some very um, uh, famous musicians like Bob Dylan or gospel favorite Michaela Jackson. The stated goals included to uh, included desegregated public accommodations and schools and expansive federal workers program. Um, this march in Washington was a very, very important um, moment for the civil rights movement since it was um, reported in very many television stations. So it was um, reported on all over, all over the US and, and also a lot of times in other countries all over the world. And King helped to popularize the movement since the television and mass media in general singled out his speech a lot as the greatest success of the march. Um, and it was mostly his speech that got transported into pretty much every other country in the world. And that really made this movement and this march very popular and um, get more attention than it already had to. Um, it was very important because that increased the pressure, um, like the pressure from the outside on America or in the government. So the speech was obviously held on the march in Washington, otherwise it wouldn't have made sense for me to talk about it. Um, as I already said, it featured a series of prominent speakers, one of them being King, and King being the most prominent and the most often cited one of all the speeches. All the speeches that he ever gave and all the speeches that happened on this march. So the march was actually um, delivered in front of 250,000 people um, at the March of Washington, as I said, in 1963, in case you forgot to date. <laughs> um, yeah, Martin Luther King, um, in contrast to all the other speakers who spoke that day, they handed in their speeches two days earlier to have um, uh, King and the, like, Fun, no, organizers of the event read through them. Well, King didn't even have had his draft before midnight, a day before. He stayed up all night to write his draft, and in the end, he decided to go with his gut and drifted away from his draft and started the whole very, very famous part with I Have a Dream. That wasn't in his draft at all, but it was something he had already earlier said to a crowd in... Um, another state, I don't rem remember which one, but in another state, um, in a church in front of not that many people, he has already had already said it and it had a huge impact on the crowd. So um, he knew that and he was like, okay, I need to do something more. I need to do something more impressive. And he went by his gut and started to talk about this dream that he has, which is what stayed in everyone's minds and what is still something that you can probably all quote and if someone says I have a dream the name Martin Luther King should pop up in your mind immediately. <laughs> um, the powerful imagery and the repetition of I have a dream made King's speech one of the most memorable ones of all time. It is called to be the signature moment of the civil rights struggle or one of the signature moments of the civil rights struggle and it there was a like marble slab engraved with I have a dream that was like set on the spot where he delivered the speech. So just for this speech, there's a monumentum or like a memorial because it was so impactful and it made 
everyone or nearly everyone in the whole world look at this movement and it helped the movement so much to increase its popularity even though um, there are people who argue that King himself didn't really influence the politicians that much in, in, in like putting out these civil rights acts and voting rights act and stuff but he did so much in popularizing this movement and helping this movement to become more seen and have an international touch and um, that was very very important and he was also a very 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 gifted speaker and I enjoyed recording the speech so much so so much I really really hope you guys enjoyed this speech and that you are not sick of hearing it because I'm pretty sure that at least the part of I have a dream almost everyone has read or heard at least once in their life so I hope you guys enjoy it and we'll be right back after that to continue on with our discussion. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall here. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note. In so far as the citizens of color are concerned, instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and security of justice. We've also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. 
It will be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. The sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until there is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. And those who have hoped that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. And there will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolts will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But there is something that I must say to my people, who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the place of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty or wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has enfolded the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. And they have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must take the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and dropped off their dignity by signs stating, for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. And some of you have come from areas where your quest, quest for freedom, left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up 
and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls, as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. We, with this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning. My country, this of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening allegiance of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. Not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. So guys, I hope you enjoyed this speech. I really enjoyed it, as I already said. Um, what did you think of it? I loved it. Um, I especially liked not only getting to hear the I have a dream part, but also the sentences before. Mm -hmm. And I think that you could like really tell that 
up until he went into the I have a dream part. He was reading from a script or like was speaking scripted words. I think you can really tell when it switches from being something premeditated to being something more of a spontaneous nature. More intuitive and also I feel like more emotional and more emotive as well. Um, when also recording it I really noticed that as much as I liked how he phrased it in the beginning when it started to come to the more improvised part I noticed how I could easily more easily um, put like emphasis on different words because the sentences weren't so long and was filled with so many smart words. Yeah so. just the, the speak like the words the wording it got easier but it still didn't lose power in that exactly. way. And I think one reason why the speech got so famous or that part of the speech got so famous, at least the second time he delivered it with yeah. media recordings, um, is exactly because it is easy wording, it's full of emotion, it's emotive, as you said, um, but it's easy to understand, like anyone can understand it. I don't think I necessarily ever like read or listened to the whole speech. At least not that I remember. Um, it's just this, I have a dream. It's For me, it was kind of heartbreaking recording it because it still is a dream to so many people. It is still something that, even though that's like, was 60 years ago, it's still something that we have to dream about. Obviously things have changed, as I said. There were huge, um, important things that happened after these, the speech and this march and stuff. But the mindset of too many people hasn't changed. Or we have to be able to make it happen for us to become one understanding and one uplifting each other community in one world. Yeah, I agree with you. I like I have a course or class this semester in university where we also it's like about cultural theories and how they're represented in literature mm -hmm. um, and obviously it's a lot about racism it makes me like feel to be in an uncomfortable position because on the one hand I really feel for especially what African-American writers are saying or have been speaking, preaching, have been writing. I really feel for them and I think they're absolutely right. But then I've never been in a position where I myself experience racism. It's weird because I feel for them and I think they're right. And to me, it's like, yeah, we've, I mean, I see that we've come a long way and I see that there's still injustice done. And then on the other hand, I'm from Germany and it, to me, has always felt like, first of all, we don't have as many like people from African descent with darker skin color True. here. Second of all, it feels like we've just started up our system or restarted our system so recently um, that so many things are different and it always has seemed to me that social discrimination in Germany, to me, always seems to be not as much connected as race as to 
other things. True. Um, one being religion, but I feel like that is something that is spoken about and very publicly and recognized very publicly. Also, and I think that's a process we're going through right now and where we also come a long way is with members of the LGBTQ plus community. Yep. And then to me, it's also, it always seemed like it had more to do with like your social class when you're being more like discriminated against also by institutions and stuff. So to me, it's sometimes, it's just like talking about it to me, it's sometimes hard because I feel like I, I mean, I can say how I feel and how I think, but then I'm a white woman and I've grown up in a society where I've never really like faced like really racial discrimination, like very obvious ones, like based on race. It just feels like sometimes, for me, it feels like I don't have the right to talk about it. Yeah. Because I have not experienced it in any type of way. And I think it's such an important topic that even though it is talked or it was talked about, it still is talked about in the media quite often and regularly, we cannot get upset or tired of hearing about it. It's such a important and recurring topic that we need to talk about. But at some points, you just sit there and you're like I don't know how to say any more about it except for I support everyone who's on the side of um, equality and stuff because I don't know how to argue anymore because I have not experienced it and I feel like I'm taking the part or the voice away from the, the um, African-American people it's so hard to like get in words how, what you want to bring out because yeah but like being in the privileged group yeah. so to say um and feeling uncomfortable about it is exactly the right place to be exactly and not finding words to express it other than saying i support equality for all human beings like whether it's based on race on sexuality on religion I don't care. I just feel like every... Or how much money somebody has. I don't really care. Like, I really don't. Like, everybody should have the same opportunities and the same chances. And I know that's utopian. And it will never happen because certain things will always play a role on yeah. how you start in life and da-da-da. But I feel like it's just so hard and weird sometimes. And, I mean, I have, like... I have been part of situations where I felt like there was racial bias and I remember a situation back in in school um, when I, I think it was in ninth grade or something we were predominantly of Caucasian descent in my class but we had we had one one girl who was like obviously of African descent by that we had teacher and Day. I'm still not quite sure whether he just didn't like her as a person because so many situations where it wasn't easy but he was always really hard on her like my one situation where I was like feels like this is based on race but it was also hard not to see that they really had issues that were based on deeply a personal level okay what I myself have experienced is like stigma against people with um, illnesses or mental yeah. health issues 
Um, so like, oh my God, like you're taking antidepressants, like you, you even study how can you even get a degree or, oh my God, you were, I don't know, on a psych ward once, like you're crazy and oh, just yeah. things like that. And I'm like, uh-huh, yeah. but before I told you that it was this way, you were just saying how much you admire, how much I have accomplished, like... Uh, yeah. You should maybe check your worldview a little bit. Exactly. Another thing I personally experience is like sexism, obviously, but I've also experienced like from people they are super conservative or very religious, often a problem when you're not heterosexual, bisexual. <laughs> but like when I see somebody, for example, post something where I'm just like, feel good about this. What I tend to do is instead of going on a tirade, I just know them, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't see their posts. Um, yeah. So what I tend to do is just like I try to talk to those people. And for example, I know people who are super religious and to them, sexuality, homosexuality in their worldview, it's a sin and it shouldn't exist. And it's more like an illness. But I try to come at least to a point where I'm like, okay... Um, I'm alright if you don't accept this for yourself yeah, accept it for others accept that it's my choice and impress me as a person or my opinion or anybody else just because they're different if you don't want this for yourself I'm to I like I understand it's totally okay you have a different opinion in that Yeah, I get that but just don't push it on anybody else and don't shoot anybody because of this I think Especially if you want to change a population's mind, you always have to go by, like, also find compromises. Not like everybody should be equal, but I think you can't expect something to change from just like overnight. I think that doesn't work. I think you need to give other people time, you know, through stuff. But then I think there's issues like legal equality where you ha don't have to give time. No. I think people had it. Um, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And I often, ex I actually often experienced racism, not myself, but I was in a situation where somebody was racist against someone else. Honestly, all of these weren't against um, people with a different skin color, but maybe people with um, a different accent or people with um, a different just look overall. Um, where they get told to just go back to your country, we don't want you and stuff like that. Um, and I always try, like if it's a situation where I can like go in, I go in and I say, hey, that's not okay. You cannot say that. If you don't, like if you're having an argument for a reason, stay on the objective level. Don't say that. That is just plain rude. That is not okay. That is actually disgusting. I don't think it's any human being deserves to be told to go back to somewhere like in that type of way obviously if your teacher tells you go back to your place but <laughs> we're not talking about that okay but it's not okay to tell someone you don't deserve to be here because you look like that because you do that because you like this because i don't know this is not okay and I will always say something against it because I don't think it is right and I don't care if that person gets mad at me because I can just say I am not part of your argument. I am just saying here, this is not okay. If you continue to do that, I will call the police because this is not okay. This is against the law. And then most of the times they will stop 
when they don't um normally adult like adults from around me would like jump in and talk them to a little bit more sense um but i actually i think it was like three or four times that i've experienced that um where i was very shocked at the first time when i heard that i was like no that that cannot be true i didn't just hear that did i um but i did <laughs> so that wasn't a fun experience and i was only a standby and i was able to act upon it because I was not on the victim's side. I don't even want to imagine and I don't feel myself in an, a position to imagine what it feels like being on the victim's side. And I just think that is something that really needs to be worked on. But as you said, it's not something that will change overnight. I'm not saying that people should like give everyone like a hundred more years time. I'm just saying if someone does not respect you and you tell them that is not okay and blah blah and they come to you the next day don't expect them to be completely changed if you see that they started to think that's a good sign and then you can like try to keep going and talk with them about it but it's not gonna change overnight but like you said this is only the people's mind legal things they need to change overnight and they should have changed by now it is not okay for a human being to be treated differently because of anything that they have from birth on. It's not something that they did. We're talking about things that you have with you from birth on. This includes race, obviously. You don't decide where on earth you're born. You don't decide that. It just happens. <laughs> this includes sexuality or gender. It is something that you get birthed into, into the feeling of Either you don't feel right in your body or you want you like this person or you like that gender or you like this non-gender person or this is also something that you are mostly born in or born with. You shouldn't be treated differently because of something you are. Yeah. But you can be treated according to your actions and also also I think you can be judged by your actions. Yeah. But not by who you are. What or who you are. There's one more thing I, I wanted to go back to. Um, right in the beginning, you were saying that sometimes you're afraid that you take the voice away from yeah. from those who are suffering or yeah. from those who are subjected to. I want to go back to racism. So, because um, get that? It is awesome and it's great that there's so many people out there who themselves are not subjected to racism, who are out there and who say, yeah, we support this movement and or we support those people. And I think they should be equal and everything or everybody should be equal. And we need to fix this. We need to fix the system. We need to fix our mindset. Yeah. Um, but I think what's key here is that you say you support them, you show you support them. But I think the main thing we as white people need to do is listen. What's really important here is that we don't take advantage of, you know, our advantages and speak over them and, you know, fix it for them. And I think that's what's been happening throughout history. And I think mm -hmm. what's key is changing fixing something for somebody to fixing it with somebody.
because fixing it for somebody obviously didn't work out. Yeah, and it's really and it's demeaning. You know, it's like they know what they want, they know what they need. If you work together, you can figure out how to get where black people need to get. Exactly. In order to have the same chances, to have the same opportunities. And not just black people. I think in Europe, or at least in, in Central Europe, it's not as much about being black, but like being a refugee or having a refugee history. Yeah. It's not about fixing it for those people who we like to other so much for some reason. It's about listening what they need. And fixing it with... Because they have their own voice and they need to be heard. And that for that reason, you need to listen to make them or to have them heard. Because somebody can only be heard if you listen. See, and now we're exactly at this point in the conversation where I always... Oh, where my toenails just roll up. Because I hate having a huge part of humanity and calling them they. It just feels like singling out. But sometimes it's so hard to to convey what you like feel and how you think and how you see things in your mind with the limited wording we have. A group of people in society and calling them they and too much to me that feels so much like othering. But I think it is important to before you can attack the problem, it is important to not single them out, but to show them, to tell who them is, who yeah. they are. Yeah. And for that, you need to exp you need to say they, because if you don't, how will people get it? Yeah. But I get what you're saying. Where this is such a sensitive topic and yeah. such a very difficult topic to talk about. It is so hard to find the right words for it. It's impossible. It's impossible. But we still hope that we did kind of okay job in this episode. Um, we tried. We tried our best. If you have any other opportunity or if you want to tell us your experiences with racism or if you want to tell us uh, situations that you like stood by in, if you weren't like a person who experienced racism then please go and tell us on our instagram which is at history sisters pod or our email which is the history sisters pod at gmail.com we always love hearing from you guys yeah and if you want to help us out even more um tell your friends about it if you think that would be something for them and make sure to give us a five star rating on itunes even though you don't listen to this podcast on itunes it helps out a ton to help people who don't know the podcast yet to find the podcast i guess we're gonna talk at you again uh in two weeks time and uh, till then keep listening to each other keep reading keep learning and stay safe yeah and stay healthy you got this i know it's a hard time right now for everyone but you got this bye everybody bye